I'd ask you to turn today, church, to James chapter 4. As we, uh, we're kind of over the hill in James. We're on, on the downside of, of this book that has been incredibly, uh, in hope, it has, been, it has been helpful to you and edifying to you. We're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10 today. And I've entitled this sermon, Draw Near to God. There's an encouragement in this passage to draw near to God. As you're turning there, I just want to reflect on something that I have found to be true. And that is that sometimes um, there there are different ways of of preaching the Bible. Uh, When I was younger... And I, I preached my first couple of sermons, which is always just, whenever I go back and listen to that first sermon that I ever preached, it's always just a great embarrassment to me, right? To, to hear myself and to hear some of the things that I said. I think I even committed a Christological heresy in there. I probably should have been like, you know, rebuked by the pastor of that church for a couple of things that I said just in my ignorance and in my youth. But, um, but there are a couple of different ways to preach the Bible. Let me see if you've heard something like this before. Sometimes I feel like I've heard, I've heard sermons preached, I've heard passages explained in such a way that it sounded like this. Hey, do better. Try harder. Here's a command. I'll give you the command. Now you go and do the command. And that was kind of the end of it. There was no gospel. There was no Here's here's the power that God has given you to do this. It was just, hey, you go be a better Christian, right? That's incredibly defeating because there's two kinds of people who do well with those sermons. There's the people who think that they are really, really good and they just come away prideful. They just come away thinking, yeah, I do great with that command. And then there are other people who who just leave defeated. Like, yeah, I've heard that command. That command is actually one that I fail a lot on. And they just walk away defeated. So there's the incredibly prideful and the incredibly defeated when they hear a sermon that's kind of legalistic, right? Like, hey, go do this. Then there's the other kind of sermon that I've I've heard preached and that, if I'm honest, I've preached it as well. And it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, hey, Jesus has done it all. Jesus has done it, and because Jesus has done it all, you don't have to like, do anything now. There's no change that's, that's required in your life. There's, there's no kind of transformation that God wants to do inside of you. Jesus paid it. He punched your ticket, so you go, well, I never say it this way, but you end up leaving the impression that, hey, because Jesus has paid it all, there's no need for a changed life. There's no need for transformation. You just kind of keep doing what you want to do. What I love about this passage this morning is that it brings together a command and it brings together the gospel-like comfort that comes with it, that gives power to do the command. And so I hope you'll see that as I read through this passage in just a moment. I hope you'll see that these things walk hand in hand and that if I'm preaching this passage well, you will see both the command to, yes, go and do, go and be changed. Live a changed lifestyle. But you can only do it because of what Jesus has already done. He gives the power. He gives the enabling. So these two things walk hand in hand. But before I read this passage, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had an experience in your life where it was kind of like the more you did one thing, the less you found yourself doing another? 
The more you committed yourself to this, the less you found that you could be committed to that. Our time works this way. When I was in college, I actually went to college as a freshman as a really, really big-time morning person. Okay? I remember having 8 o'clock classes, which everybody seemed to want to try to not to have. But I remember one morning, I remember waking up so early that I realized I hadn't written a speech for a public speaking class. And I was up early enough to write the speech, study it, get dressed, shower, change, and all that, go up and eat breakfast, and then make it to my early class. That's how much of a morning person I was. But then I, I had this roommate. He's a great guy. Love, love Nick to death. He's a doctor now. He's like an army doctor, toughing it out at, at, on, on the island of Hawaii, right? <laughs> Thank you for your service, Nick, if you're watching out there roughing it but he liked to play video games until like two in the morning and so i found it very difficult to sleep because he was playing video games until two o'clock in the morning so what did i do well i did i do what every mature young adult did and just have a you know a real honest conversation with him about boundaries and about how we're going to work this thing out or did i did i even try to move rooms and 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 go somewhere else where i could sleep no, I didn't do either one of those. Actually, I started playing video games until 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> with my roommate. And I found that when you do that, it's very difficult to wake up at like 5.30. It's crazy. The more you commit yourself to one thing, there's always like a, a give and take. And that seems to be what James is telling us in this passage. He seems to be saying, when you invest in things other than the kingdom of God... It takes you away further from the kingdom of God. In other words, you can either walk very closely with God or you can walk very closely with the world. And there's really not a way to do both of those. It's really, you're either going to be sold out for Jesus or you're going to be kind of sold out for other stuff. So let's read in James 4, 4 through 10. He starts out really kind of hardcore and then he transitions to like, a kind, like, like grandfatherly advice. So just look at how this kind of develops. James chapter 4, verse 4. He starts out, man, guns ablaze, and he says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are tough words. It's very black and white. Look at verse 5. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? In other words, God has put His Spirit inside of you and He is jealous that that Spirit do exactly what it is supposed to do. He's jealous for you. He's jealous over you. And we'll talk about that jealousy in a moment. Verse 6. This is when the tone changes. This is beautiful. But... He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. See the offer? The offer of what we can do. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would give us a clear picture of what this text is saying. I pray that I would largely just kind of get out of the way and let your Bible do its work in our hearts. Lord, teach me what I need to know from this. As I, it's a passage about humility. Lord, I need to humble myself and ask your word. God, would you, would you do your, your, your work through your word in my heart too? Change us, God, and help us to see the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you noticed here, but as I say, this passage is very, very black and white. Friendship with God and friendship with the world, they just don't mix. They're like oil and water. And we kind of have to choose. We kind of have to choose which way we're going to go. Are we going to cast our lot in with the world and ask it to give us what we need or... Are we going to, in faith, follow God and say, Lord, come what may, I'm going to follow you. It's kind of like when I was a kid, they took us to this, I went to this camp. It was like a 4-H camp in North Carolina called Betsy Jeff Penn. And they had this little exercise. It was like a team building exercise down in the creek. And they filled this big, this big barrel, like a you know, 50-gallon barrel, one of those poly things, plastic barrels. And they drilled a bunch of holes in it. And there were holes down at the bottom and holes up at the top. And they said, here's the goal. The goal is for you to take these old coffee cans and to fill this barrel up with water. So some of y'all are going to have to be plugging holes with your fingers and with your face and with your arm. And the rest of y'all are going to have to be scooping up water and dumping it in. And the first one to make it get to the top, that's who wins. And so what we learned very quickly was it seemed like the more people who were trying to scoop water and dump it in, the less people we had to plug the holes. And the more people we asked, we'd stop and say, okay, let's recalibrate here. We need some more people to plug the holes. And people started you know, sticking elbows different places and, and fingers different places to try to stop the water from running out of the barrel. And the more people who were doing that, the, the, the less people we had to fill up the, the barrel. And it seemed like we could never just strike the balance. And that reminds me of just the frustration of what it's like. Of what it's like to try to have one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus. It just it simply doesn't work. It's like those old cartoons when you see the cartoon character put one foot on one train and one foot on another train car. And the train has become like uncoupled and they just keep going and you just keep getting torn and split. The reality is this, the Bible presents a very kind of black and white picture of what it means to follow Christ. And let's look back to verse 4 as we look at this first point. This first point is this, just what the Bible says. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity is just another word for the situation that is there when you're an enemy with somebody. You have enmity with your enemies. It says this in verse 4, You adulterous people... Do you not know? It's like they, they ought to know this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's what I think we're tempted to. We're tempted to think of our relationship with God in terms of like cost and returns, cost and benefits. 
You might hear someone thinking, or you might think of someone thinking in themselves, yes, I'm going to follow God only insofar as I'm getting a good return on my investment, right? Because really, I kind of want to be my Lord, and I kind of want to do my thing, and my relationship with God is going to be cool just as long as He keeps giving me what I want. But if there comes a season in my life when it seems like God is not really working out for me and what I want, then maybe I'm going to have to step back and reevaluate my relationship with God because He's not really working for me. We live in a consumeristic culture, right? I mean, it seems like, and social media has really, has really uh, just accelerated this, but I don't know if you've noticed this. I mean, you can get just about whatever you want if you just put somebody on blast on social media. Like, I've seen people... I've seen people like weasel out of paying stuff because they, they tell of like a bad experience they've had with a company. And next thing you know, the company is just like tweeting back at them on Twitter saying, you know, yes, we'll give you a full refund. Just, you know, please take down your post that, that gives us a bad name or something like that. But I wonder if, if our consumeristic culture has seeped into the way that we think about God. If we think about him as I come to God so that he will give me what I want. He exists primarily to satisfy me. I have a set of desires. I bring them to God. And if he doesn't give me what I want, then maybe this thing isn't going to work out. But do you hear what James is saying instead? James seems to be saying, the closer you walk with the world and its allure, and the things that it says that it can offer you, the closer you walk with the world, the further away from God you will walk. And not only that, but if the pattern of your whole life is one that is worldly, then that indicates that you may not be in Christ at all. Seems to be what James is saying here. But it goes on. James uses some very, uh, very strong language. He says, you adulterous people, right? Adultery is, of course, the breaking of the most intimate relationship you can have. And that's what he says this is like. Living for the world is like committing adultery against God. We like to think that we can have our cake and eat it too. But really, we need to be asking ourselves these questions. Does our wisdom, do our words and wisdom increasingly look like Christ's? Do our works more and more look like Christ? Does the way that we handle conflict look like it has been changed by the gospel? For James, our relationship with Jesus isn't like an appendage. It isn't like an upgraded subscription. It's not like an aftermarket part that we add on to our already mostly perfect lives and we come to Jesus because he kind of satisfies that little religious impulse that we have. Instead, James seems to be saying that our relationship with Christ is either everything about us or it is nothing. Seems to be what he's getting at here. Listen to how 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of it. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Jesus has died for all. Okay, Therefore, all have died. The reason that Jesus died for us all is because we are all dead in our sins. And listen to what it says next. And he died for all so that those who live, namely us, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, here's what I'm trying to communicate. 
God isn't trying to sell you on less joy, on less fulfillment, on less pleasure. He's actually trying to give you more. He's actually trying to give you more joy, true and lasting pleasure, true and lasting fulfillment. Why? Because He made you and He knows the fuel that you were created to run on. And if you try to run on the fuel of the world, it'll satisfy for a season, but it will not be ultimately fulfilling. That's why He knows He wants you to run on the fuel of Him. It's kind of like He's coming to us and and saying this. I don't know about you, but I have kind of a a reasonably well-managed Mountain Dew addiction, okay? It's confession time. It's reasonably well... I could stop anytime I want to, okay? It's kind of like when the good doctor comes in and says, hey, listen, I know that the sugar tastes good. I know that you've grown dependent. I know that even though Mountain Dew is not a controlled substance, the minute that you stop, you're going to experience some withdrawal symptoms, Right? I know that you're going to feel like you can't operate without your little pick-me-up, but your teeth are falling out. And the doctor says, I want you to be able to enjoy some filet mignon. And it's really hard to enjoy filet mignon when your teeth are falling out. So I want you to have a change of your tastes. I want you to have a change of your desires, not because I want to give you less. I know it looks like I'm taking away the Mountain Dew from you. I want you to be able to have the bacon wrapped 10-ounce right? I want you to be able to have something better. And that's what Jesus offers to us in the gospel. God wants to change our tastes. He wants to change our desires. He wants us not to be attuned to the things that are shiny and the things that give the momentary pleasure, but in the end lead to death. He says, I want you not to walk with the world. I want you to walk with me. Here's how you can tell. Here are a few bellwether questions. Here's how you can tell if you're generally walking with the world or if you're generally walking with Christ. Do you feel that God is kind of like a liability? That he's kind of like an inconvenience? Do you feel that if you spent more time serving him, it would actually give you less time to do what you want to do? Is that how you feel? Do you feel or do you find yourself thinking on the other side? Hey, the Lord has given me a lot of stuff. He's given me a lot of time. He's given me a lot of talents. He's given given me some financial resources and stuff. I want to figure out how I can leverage all of my life toward the gospel and toward the kingdom expanding. Yes, committing myself and, and plugging in at my church, but also figuring out how I can make sure that the gospel is heard to the ends of the earth. So anything that God has given me is just a tool that he's put into my hands for a period of time that I need to figure out how to throw at the gospel the best. Is that, that's how you can tell if, 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 if you're generally worldly or if you're generally walking with Christ and he has become all. Is everything that you have and everything that you own and every ability that you've been given, do you you spend your time thinking about how you can best spend it on self or do you spend your time thinking about how you can best spend it on Christ? That's how we can generally tell if we're worldly or godly. May God make us more and more godly. Number two, it says this. Point number two, God is jealous for his glory and this is good news for us. God is jealous for his glory, and this is good news for us. You know, at one time during an interview, 
Oprah was asked why she couldn't take the God of the Bible. And she answered, because the Bible says that God is jealous. Okay, friends, God is not jealous like we get jealous, right? We get jealous when we see that somebody else has a toy that we really like but we don't have, right? That's what our jealousy is. It's a sinful jealousy. God's jealousy is instead more like a holy zeal. It's his desire for righteousness to happen. And so what he sees when God looks down and inside of, of his image bearers, and he sees his image bearers living and, and, and giving themselves toward things that are lesser than, it, it, I think it grieves his heart in a, in a manner of speaking. He becomes it doesn't become jealousy. He is jealous for what is good and right. He, he desires that what is good and right always be what takes place. After all, he has a right to be in a godly sense, in a holy sense, jealous for us because he purchased us by his blood, by his son's blood on the cross. And we in turn, when we, when we offer our affections to other lesser things, this is why he says, you adulterous People. He says this relationship that we are supposed to have with one another is so intimate and is so personal and is so good and sweet that I'm going to call it a marriage. And when we start going out and breaking that covenant, God, God calls it adultery. When we start living for things that are just lesser than. And that's why this language, I believe, is so strong. But God's goodness is shown to us in this. He knows what's best for us. And so his jealousy over it, his jealousy that we would follow him and that we would give ourselves totally to him is good for us as he beckons us back. And friends, I have to believe that, that God is beckoning, that God is beckoning each and every one of us today to a closer walk with him. Why? Because he is good and he wants what's best for us and he's jealous over the Holy Spirit that he has placed inside of believers. And those perhaps who are not believers, I believe he's calling you too because he wants what's best for you, namely him, himself. Look at verses 7 through 10. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can do with this, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee to you, uh, flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You hear the offer? It's like it's not all bad news. He starts off saying, you're adulterous people, and it sounds like a bunch of bad news, but then he, he shifts, he shifts like tone, and he says, but he gives more grace. In other words, God hasn't just left us out there. He's not just going to let us wander and, and keep wandering further and further away from Him. Today, He is beckoning us back. He gives more grace. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then in verse 9, He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So in other words, in other words, yes, you may have failed. Yes, you may have, have been using the wrong scorecard. You may have been, honestly, if, if, here, here's, how I can, here's how I know when I start to drift away from the Lord. When I start to have these mental conversations in my mind 
that are like justifying what I'm doing. It's like I know that it's wrong. I know that it's wrong for me to be really kind of going this way, but then I have to really try to rationalize it in a way that makes sense. Well, I can keep doing this because after all, God's going to forgive me, right? But Romans 6.1 says, no, that's not how Christians think. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, he says. So, so, yes, you may have given yourself over to the wrong values. If we're honest, all of us have at one point or another. But here's the beauty of the gospel. God hasn't left you. God has not abandoned you to the stuff that you've been living for. God wants to draw you back, even stuff that's nice and presentable. I have very good friends um, that, that I would love for them to be able to come here sometime and give you their testimony. She was a drug rep. He was a pilot flying, race car drivers. He flew, he lived there near Charlotte, and they, he flew for Dell Earnhardt Enterprises, flew their drivers all over the different racetracks during race season and stuff. So they're both really well off, got a big house on the lake, all that stuff. And there wasn't anything that they were doing that was like intentionally, I don't know, rebellious against God. I'm sure they were going to church. I'm sure they were paying their tithe up and all that stuff. And they might have been on a volunteer list somewhere. But they would tell you today that they had given themselves over to that life. They had given themselves over to what the world could offer. And what Jesus offers is better. What Jesus offers satisfies. And so they sold the house and they had been living as, as uh, not, not that this is the application for everybody, but they, they, they sold the house, sold the cars, and, and moved to the other part of the world to tell people about the gospel. And they've been doing that kind of work ever since. Not that that's what everybody should do, but we should all be careful that we are not giving ourselves over to a vision, that we're not giving ourselves over to a set of desires that ultimately lead us away from Jesus. So I'll just encourage you in that way. Here's what we can do. We can humble ourselves before God. We can confess to Him that He is our Lord. He has the keys. God, no longer am I going to just set the agenda and ask you to join me. I'm going to ask you, what agenda do you want me to live for? I'm going to let you set the prerogatives. I'm going to let you set the table and I'll, I'll follow your lead. Here's why. It's a lot more pleasant to humble yourself before God than it is for God to have to humble you. And friends, God will. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you think you are. God has an ability, just like he did to Nebuchadnezzar, right? The king of a whole country. God can humble you. And it's a lot less painful for you to just humble yourself than for God to have to cut you off at the knees. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, says in this passage. Spoiler alert though, the way that we resist the devil is by humbling ourselves, is by getting down off of our horse and saying, God, you have the keys to my life. It says in Isaiah 2.17, the pride or the haughtiness, that's just a big word for pride, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. 
Another thing we can do is to be purified. Look what it says here. Cleanse your hands in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8 of James. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We have to be cleansed in order to be in God's presence. And the only way that we can be cleansed is by the blood of Jesus. So I would say to you, if, if you're here today and you're recognizing my whole life has been one long story of me living for myself, I would say to you today, come to Jesus. Confess your sins. He will receive you. I don't care what you've done. Listen to what it says in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. All this language about being wretched and mourning and weeping, it reminds us of Psalm 51. I just want to read that. Psalm 51 is, is David. David, of course, is caught in his sin. David doesn't try to blame shift. David doesn't look elsewhere. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. This is a man whose conscience is bothering him. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. It says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We made this connection the other night on a Sunday night. Here David said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? Remember when Jesus was on the cross and they lifted up a sponge and it had some wine and some sour vinegar in it? They lifted it up on a branch. They lifted it up on a hyssop branch. Remember that from John 19? It's giving us a picture. How will we be made clean? We'll be made clean by the sacrifice of Jesus. Only He can do it. So here seems to be the point. Yes, be wretched and mourn and weep. Come to God with a heart of, of contrition, of repentance. Why? Because being willing to endure some discomfort now, you'll see how worth it it was when we are with Christ later. Being willing to endure some some pain now so that we can be close to God, it'll make sense because what's coming is even better. So don't put all your eggs in the basket of this life. Put your eggs in the basket of Jesus and of eternity. And see the offer that God gives. He says these things. He gives us these commands. He's like pleading with us. He gives more grace. Submit yourselves. Draw near. Cleanse your hands. Be wretched. Humble yourselves. Why? Because God stands with open arms ready to receive. So maybe you have walked in some worldliness. I don't know. Maybe your parenting strategy has been more like, I just want to make my kids happy instead of I want to see my kids become holy. It's just been kind of a worldly picture of family. Maybe all your financial decisions have been about your comfort and your convenience instead of about the kingdom of God advancing. Maybe you're only kind of just loosely committed to the church because other things are more important. But friends, I would say to you, I would say to you, 
draw near to God today. We have, we have responsibilities that need to be taken care of. We have young children that need to be discipled. We have youth that need to be poured into. We have uh, all the way up to our senior adults who need ministry. Friends, there is a place for you to plug in to our church. Maybe that would be what it would look like for you to, to run away from a little bit of worldliness and to run toward godliness. Maybe you recognize you haven't strayed from God. You've never been in Him. Your whole life is one story of worldliness. Well, friends, I would say to you today, the same offer stands. God loves you. He's saying the same thing to you as He was, as he was saying through James way back then. He's saying... Draw near to God. God stands ready to receive you today. I want to read as I close, and I am closing, right? It's not just a preacher closing. This is a real legitimate closing. I want to read to you from John chapter 6. Because as I said at the beginning, this little passage of Scripture has been hard, but it hasn't been without gospel, right? Listen to what happens in John chapter 6, verse 60. Jesus just got done saying a bunch of hard things. And you know what happened when Jesus said a bunch of hard things? A bunch of people walked away. This is what happens in John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that, uh, that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, I pray that today that our eyes will be open. Those of us who are believers, perhaps even one who has said this morning in their heart, and I've recognized I'm, I'm not a believer and I need to become a believer today. I pray that we would be a people who would say to Jesus, nothing else really matters. I can't ever go away from you because I have tasted and seen that you are good and you have the words of life. I would ask you now, as we begin to pray and Miss Dawn comes in place, would you respond to whatever God would be prompting you to do today, to response? Um, in a moment, I, I am going to pray. We are going to have a time of response. You're going to stand and we're going to sing. If this stage would be just a venue for you to come and kneel and, and just say a prayer to God, that is open to you. If I can help you in any way, I'll be right down here uh, to speak with you about whatever the Lord may be saying in your heart. So uh, would you pray with me now and we will respond. God, you're so good to us. Thank you for giving us your word. And thank you that even in difficult passages that say really hard to, hard to receive things, things that are just really hard to, uh, to grasp a hold of and to, and to live out, that you haven't just given us a bunch of commands. You've given us the gospel that enables us to live a transformed kind of life. So what I pray that for those who are in this room, for those who are up in the fellowship hall, for those who might even be watching at home, I pray that whatever response 
You, you are stirring in our hearts that we, would, that we would submit to that, that we would humble ourselves before you, uh, and that we would respond. And so, Lord, I pray you do that work in us today. In the name of Jesus, amen.